0: everyone and welcome back to the Creatable Future podcast with Ryder Tracy, an education podcast for teachers that shines a light on industry practice and connects it to the classroom. Last week we had a great chat with Dr Duncan Rintoul, Director at Rooftop Social, about how educators can embed evaluative practice in their day-to-day routines. Today we'll be sharing part two of this great conversation with Dunk. Hope you enjoy. Let's dive in. What, what do you what do you think about when I guess the evaluation is good, easy sell, like we want to know more about what we're doing, we want to make informed decisions about what to do next, cadence makes sense, you know, pick sustainable kind of loops, you know, collaborate, use fresh eyes and people from the outside. What do you think when people say, and I'd be interested, you know, from outside of school as, as well, you know, like I don't have enough time. Like I'm so busy as it is. The idea of putting additional work into my already busy workflow to evaluate is just not realistic at the moment. You can't add more on top. I'm already full. Um, what would your advice be?
1: I think, it's, I think it's true. I think it's real. I think, I think the, um, the, the pressures on people's diaries are immense and intense. And, but I also think that teaching has always been a job where the work is never done. Like there's there's always more you could do, right? I feel like the argument for evaluation in that context uh, can be one around efficiency. Like it's the stitch in time that saves the nine. You know, like that it's the measure twice, cut once. If if our resources are limited, uh, which they are, and human resources are, are, are limited, but also our time with these with the students, you know, in this class in this year is is limited. I've got 40 weeks, mo- and then you minus some out of that. Then can I afford to not be reflective in my practice? What are the risks of um, teaching this the same way that I did last year, but to a, a different set of students? And the risks become really apparent really, really quickly. Well, like, well, what if they're what if you've got students in your class who aren't where they were last year or the thing that you did last year didn't work last year? What is it that makes like, like, yeah, what is it that makes you think it's going to be any better this year or, uh, or, or, or those, those kinds of, um, those kinds of things. So I, I feel like if you don't have time to evaluate, then you don't have time for continuous improvement. You don't have time for essentially, you don't have time for the teaching and learning cycle.
0: Mm. Yeah
1: like that's that's I guess the moral argument for for it but then I think there's also a really important structural conversation to have within the school so what are the rhythms that we're in and are, are these rhythms that we're in are they the rhythms that we want to be in do we have healthy habits of reflective practice if we don't do this kind of reflective practice as educators ourselves can we really properly do our jobs All right well then how how do we? intentionally create the space for for that. And let's just try something. And I think also there's a modeling aspect, this. If we expect our students to be reflective on their own learning, uh, then we have to model that we're reflective on our teaching. Because if you can't see it, you can't be it.
0: Talk to me about, um, I guess, uh, in the current climate, In education, there's a lot of evaluating progress towards a target or evaluating how we're tracking comparative to other schools. I guess when we were talking about our true north earlier, uh, we were talking about it in the context of setting it for yourself, you know, like so having control and agency over what the true north is. And I wonder... In the current climate, when you've got a target imposed that you're then evaluated against, uh, you're not controlling the metric, you're not controlling the uh, outcome. You know, w- what's your kind of experience and thoughts around, I guess, targets and then skewing your behaviour uh, in a way to maybe artificially achieve a result?
1: Yeah, people talk about that as hitting the target but missing the point. Love it. That's 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 not an original. Uh- <laughs> look in defense of targets uh, i think it is helpful to draw a line in the sand and say this is what we're aiming for the the notion of a personal best for example if you hit a pb like that's really meaningful and even if you shave a second off your time or um, you you lift a kilo more than what you lifted before or whatever it is. Like there's all sorts of um, stories from human experience where setting a goal and having some indicators of progress towards that goal is exactly what we need because it's motivating. Um, And if that goal that you've set is in fact on the path that you want to be on, then by achieving that objective, you are in fact making progress towards your longer term goal. So I'll give you an example of one that I that I came across years ago that that I quite like. In the New South Wales State Plan, there was a there was a, a goal around reducing social isolation. One of the indicators was the proportion of people in New South Wales who know the phone number or the contact details of somebody who lives within five k's. If all you cared about was upping that number, you might say, "Well, what's what's the quickest way to up that number? Uh, let's create a community directory." But you just created a community directory. That now means that people do have each other's contact details. So if they need them, they can reach out. So whether or not you really care about reducing social isolation, because you care about that target and whatever process you go through to achieve that target is actually going to shift the needle in a, you know, in a good way towards reducing social isolation. There might be negative consequences of community directories. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Um, Not everybody might be into it, but I guess, I guess what I'm saying is if you've got a target that is well aligned, uh, then it can be great. Here's the rub though. It is possible to achieve targets, but miss the point. Back in um, 2006, um, uh, there's there's a a, a journal called the Public Administration Review. Uh, And there's a guy called Christopher Hood, wrote wrote an article in in this journal called, Gaming in Target World, The Target's Approach to Managing British Public Services. Now, this is a really cool example of, um, of applied history, in this paper goes back and has a look through um, you know, so- Soviet governance under, you know, like in the fifties and the sixties, which was very target driven, and there was lots of analysis after that time of all these different gaming techniques that people had used um, to just hit your quota, meet meet your target, but actually it hadn't been productive for the for the country. And what he did was have a look at what was happening under Blair's government in the UK in the early 2000s, which was also very target driven. And what he found was that all of the different gaming strategies from 50s and 60s Soviet Russia were being used in 2000s uh, UK public service. And the kinds of examples that that he gave were things like emergency department targets, minimising the time it takes for people to see a senior nurse in an emergency department. Sounds like a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, it's got, it's got clinical evidence behind it. The, the quicker you make that time, the better. There was one hospital that in order to hit its target and and, and hit it out of the park and get a financial incentive, put a, a senior uh, nurse on the front door as a greeter, which meant that their time to see a senior nurse was minuscule. They smashed their target, but the clinical outcomes in that emergency department fell because they'd taken a senior nurse out of clinical practice and they basically put that person in a, in a concierge role and there are plenty of other examples that are that are in that paper like the proportion of, of people who are uh, admitted to hospital within four hours of, a, of presenting in an, an emergency department well the difference between being admitted and not admit, not admitted apparently was whether the bed that you're in has got wheels on it so you can have a, a janitorial response to hitting that target where if someone's been there for three hours and 45 minutes, instead of actually properly admitting them, just take the wheels off the trolley that they're on and then da, 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 they're admitted because that's now a bed. So all this kind of stuff that you look at, you know, and, and like it's kind of funny for us to think about it now It's because it's, it's over there and it was back then, but far out. It is possible. It is possible to create a condition in which you set targets right now in 2022, 23, Australia, and um, in education, and have the same kinds of consequences. You've got to think pretty, think pretty creatively. Like, if I'm if I'm creating a target for somebody to meet, how is it possible that instead of it achieving what it's supposed to achieve, instead it has the opposite consequence? And it leads to a misallocation of resources, or it leads to an erosion of the quality of what we're doing here.
0: Yeah, that negative unintended consequence that comes as a result, right? It's yeah. Well, that kind of leads me to another part uh, aspect of this that I did want to talk to you about, um, which is diving a little bit deeper into why building an evaluative mindset or the evaluative capacity, nurturing that in our students and and kids, is is important. You've given us an example there where being able to interrogate the evaluation when someone has the celebratory smashed out the clinical nurse uh, wait time we need to be able to ask yeah but what's happened to the outcomes for patients as a result in conjunction with that so I guess why is it important to foster uh, evaluation and evaluative kind of competency uh, within students and kids
1: history history doesn't necessarily repeat strictly but it does often rhyme also not original content, that's often attributed to Mark Twain, but so many things are.
0: Yes, him or Einstein, right? And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's on the long list of things that people
1: say, Mark Twain said that,
0: but
1: actually <laughs> he didn't. Um, second only to Einstein, I reckon, the most like, mis- misattributed. That's thing. right, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> Twain, Einstein, Douglas Adams, Winston Churchill, and you've pretty much got it <laughs> yeah. covered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Pretty much, pretty much. Or at least in, in our frame of reference as, uh, you know, <laughs> as one as middle, middle-aged men. <laughs> why is it important to have that the culture of, of good reflective practice? In, I think in any organisation, because if you don't, you, you run the risk of remaking the mistakes of the past. Good quality reflection on what has come before you and learning the lessons from that for what comes next. Is I think I think there's a there's a moral imperative to to do that as 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 people who are spending public money or private money. There's also a learning um, a learning and sharing element to that. So if I can learn from what you do, you're in Finland and I'm in Canada. If I can learn lessons, and yes, I know the Finnish system is different to the Canadian system, and yes, I know the Finnish culture is different to the Canadian, and so on and so on and so on. But what are the transferable Lessons here, far out. That is an absolute gift to others. Ima- imagine you work in a in a, a culture where the only things that get evaluated are things that people are worried about, or things that have been quote unquote unsuccessful. Evaluation becomes code for sharpening the the guillotine. Right? It's just it's just a way of killing something. Is oh, that sucked we better evaluate that. But if you're in, the, if you're in a, a, an organization that says, well, because this is a, a medium to large investment, we're gonna evaluate it. We don't, we, don't, we don't know whether it's going to have been a success or failure or not, but just because it's a medium to large investment, we're gonna evaluate it because that's what we do here, because we wanna learn and we wanna be accountable. That's a much better um, headspace to be in. When the evaluation work you know starts to, starts to roll through or the, you know, the, the data starts to come through, the evaluation isn't happening because people think this has been a dud or because people think this has been spectacular and we're to celebrate it. It's just happening because it's what we do here.
0: Why do you think for students, so we're particularly focused on most of the big blue chip employers that we're talking to at the moment are talking about in their recruiting and in their employment uh, and even upskilling their own existing staff that evaluation is important. And so it sort of stands to reason uh, if you want a student to be numerate, early intervention is really useful. If you want them to read, you know, the earlier you're reading with them and exposing them to text, the better. Do you think the same is true uh, with evaluation and and can you nurture it uh, from an early age?
1: I believe that you can uh, teach and learn evaluative thinking. Um, I feel like the ways in which you teach it are kind of, they're probably similar to the, the kinds of teaching and learning environments where you are inviting people into a risk-taking environment. You need to construct a learning environment in which it's okay to take risks and to, and to try things on. You know, the mark of an educated person being um, you know, the, the ability to entertain a thought without necessarily agreeing with it. Going on a thought experiment, that has to be something that can be learned and it has to be something that therefore, yeah, that 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 can be taught. How how do you learn it? I think probably by seeing it modeled and then by being invited into it and being um, given a structure or some structures that scaffold the process enough so that it's not a blank page, but it's also not a very highly prescriptive process. And I feel like here I'm, I'm, echoing back um, your uh, colleague from uh, from Atlassian when asked to think about well, how do we get people to um, to problem solve well not a blank piece of paper not a ten step this is the process but some scaffolds uh, like it's definitely a learnable thing and and can I say I really hope so because if we go back to what it is that we're hoping to be able to to be able to look at a set of information and say what if all of that is true like which of those quote-unquote facts are actually what are what are the facts? But then also, how do I then interpret those, and how do I weigh things up? How do I decide whether you know, if that's true, then what? And and if and if I'm in a, a situation where this isn't a great option, but that's also not a great option, and they seem like my only two options, then how do I decide which is the the lesser of those two evils to you know to to go down?
0: Uh, one of the things I really appreciated in uh, in your response there was we uh, articulated. Uh, the four kind of most common quotes then you manage to weave Aristotle in with the <laughs> mark of an educated mind is being able to consider <laughs> something and not accept it so
1: well can, can I can I double down please on Aristotle um, uh, if you would truly understand anything, observe its beginning and its development if we're really wanting to understand something so that we can evaluate it like what's the origin story for that? So like imagine that you walk in um, as a teacher to a school where you haven't taught before and there's something that strikes you as being like, it's just, it's different. Your gut might say, well, we should flick that off because the way of, the way I've done this before and it worked perfectly well was like this. But Aristotle, you know, little, little bloke on your shoulder is gonna to say to you, where does it come from? What, what, what was this introduced in order to solve? And, and then then you can say, right, well, if it was introduced for that purpose, is it still serving that purpose? And if it is, then maybe it ain't broke and we shouldn't mess with it. So, so thinking about the origin story of things that we come across, that idea of saying, well, if you want to work out like, what to recommend something, you've got to go back and understand why it's there. Would you do that with, uh, with year five and six kids?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the you know, uh, all about the context and the delivery And yeah, like with everything, meeting students where they're at. I I like that idea of, uh, you know, for example, you know, to illustrate the point you said there, it'd be, uh, let's have a look at, you know, humor is a good way to teach and leverage, you know, so let's have a look at the labels on things. Uh, Which of these labels feels erroneous? You know, this is not a life-saving device, you know, do not pour in your eyes, do not drink. There's a reason that those labels are on there and how did that come? You know, so going back and unpacking that and exploring it makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, 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 and and actually, so with with teenagers, there would be a really um, like just taking that as an example. You could do that with uh, the labelling on alcohol bottles of standard drinks. This is this is an interesting um, an interesting story, right? Um, of one intervention that was designed for a certain purpose, but then it's got an unintended negative consequence for a different group. Back when back when you and I were um, were youngsters, there was, no, there was no marking of how many standard drinks are on a wine bottle or how many standard drinks is is in a, a beer, right? But then they, they, they introduced that in Australian labelling. So just c- come with me on this one. Why do you reckon they introduced that form of labelling on, on alcohol bottles?
0: Uh, cynically, I'm going to say because there was uh, drink driving was introduced or something like that. There was some sort of punitive consequence for having too many standard drinks
1: if they want to um regu- like um keep the the amount of alcohol that they're consuming under a certain limit this enables them to do that right and and so presumably it it, it goes back to a, to a story of um well the reason why I was over the limit was because I didn't know how much alcohol I had drunk, I had had three drinks, but actually that was seven standard drinks because they were three large wines or whatever that might might be, right? So it helps, makes it easy to count. Unintended negative consequence of that. If your goal is different, it enables you to achieve that as well. So if your goal is to get as hammered as possible, as quickly as possible, um, then, uh, and, and as cheaply as possible, then you can work your way around the the bottle shop with a with the calculator out on your phone and so what's the most cost effective way for me to get as many standard drinks um, per per buck right and so and and but both of those things are consequences of the one action the the interesting thing that you could then do as an experiment with the kids is say would it be better then to remove that labeling from the bottles So then then you're in a situation where there's positives that come out of this, but there's also risks that come out of this. Are the risks worth it given the potential positives and and those kinds of things? You're really up in that space from what is essentially a teaching and learning activity that involves looking at labels.
0: Yes. Yeah, really clear. You either take the label away or you leave the label there. You know, there's one option or the other, but uh, actually the strength of the argument is in the justification, you know, in that evaluative statement of, we should do this because of X, Y, and Z.
1: Yeah, and this and this leads into this leads people as a kind of on ramp into um, into pe- uh, thinking about ethics, and thinking about justice, and thinking about um, navigating complexity. In my experience, um, this is the kind of stuff that kids might, um, you know, like fifteen year olds might think, "Oh, that you know, that lesson was a bludge," but actually, what they've been doing is really weighing things up and 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 they've been invited into a process where it is okay to go on thought experiments
0: Dunn, i uh i really really appreciate the way that you can articulate something that's so complex and simplify it and you know i'd like to thank you for uh all of the learning that you've taught me uh over a, a long friendship um and really uh thank you for joining us today on the podcast thanks Ryder. part two of this podcast, Dunn covered some really important ground, particularly for us in the current education landscape. I loved his reflection on the time conundrum. Obviously we all have no time, but making time for embedding a little evaluation within your existing structures might just be the thing that saves us. If you don't have time for evaluation, then you probably don't have time for continuous improvement. And can we do our jobs well without that? It also resonated well for me that we can hit the target and miss the point. Dunk told a great story about the UK health system. I wonder what we can learn from this. And finally, the last reflection is a really good news story. Evaluation is important, but evaluation is teachable. So by empowering students with this skill, we're giving them a better chance for tackling the world ahead. Thanks for listening to Creatable Future. Leave us a review and let us know what you liked, what you didn't like and what you'd like more of. Reviews help us reach more listeners so that we can keep bringing you more awesome conversations. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up to date with each episode as they come out. If you want to hear more about how Creatable is connecting schools with industry through our professional learning library, head to creatablefuture.com. This episode was recorded on Darawal and Darug Country. Catch you next week.